Hi, everyone. Great to see you here at the EU public meeting. Glad you could join us today. Coming to you from in front of the lovely Sydney Uni ABS building, the Abercrombie Business School. Well, whilst we're sitting here, the search is on in laboratories around the world for a vaccine that will protect us from this novel coronavirus. And scientists all across the world, including here in Australia, are rushing furiously to develop potential vaccine candidates and get them as quickly as possible to human trial. I want you to cast your mind forward for a moment, just in your imagination. Imagine when the announcement is finally made, we've found a vaccine. What sort of reaction do you think that'll be met with? Well, it'll just be huge amounts of joy, won't it, at that news? Relief, excitement, massive celebrations, the news itself will spread, I suspect, like crazy. Who wouldn't want to share it? Have you heard the news? You know, we've got a vaccine. It'll be great good news of much joy. But whilst with the search for a vaccine is still continuing, we still have, at the moment, some genuinely good news to share. And it's the same good news that Christians have been sharing for 2,000 years since Jesus' death and resurrection in the first century AD. And the good news is this, the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is near. Now, why that is such exciting, joy-filled good news, we're going to come back to that in a moment. But I want to just pause here just with a reflection. Christians have always been, or at least should have been, known as good news people. In the opening sentence of Mark's account of Jesus' life, teaching, death and resurrection, which we have in the Christian New Testament, and which we just heard read out for us there on that video, listen to what he says. He says, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ. That word gospel just means good news, or more particularly, it means public good news, a, a grand public announcement of good news. What Mark's saying in that opening sentence is what I'm about to describe for you, in fact, the whole of this account that I'm writing, is the beginning of the great public good news about Jesus. Because that good news about Jesus has continued to be shared by Jesus' followers, by Christians, ever since. And interestingly, Jesus isn't just the content or the focus of that good news, Jesus is actually the source of that good news as well. Let me read out for you what Mark says a little bit later, which we also heard in that opening reading on the video. From verse 14 of Mark chapter 1, we read, After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. That word, good news, gospel, it's the same word that he uses right in the opening verse of chapter 1. This good news gospel, he says there in verse 14, is from God, but it comes to us through Jesus and what he announced and taught. It's Jesus' gospel, good news about him that's come from him. 
and it's what he's entrusted to his followers, to Christians, to pass on. And as a little side note there, the Greek word that Mark actually used when he wrote down his gospel, which we then translate as gospel or good news, is euangelion, from which we get the English word evangelical, as in the Sydney University Evangelical Union. That is the EU at Sydney Uni is a gospel union. It's committed to sharing and living out and growing in Jesus' gospel because we're convinced that it really is good news from God that everyone deserves to hear. So let's dig into this gospel that Jesus announced, the kingdom of God is near, and see why it is such good news, not just then when Jesus travelled throughout Galilee, but why is it such good news for us today amidst all of the distressing and crazy stuff that we see going on around us? That's what we're going to look at. So let's think about this idea that the kingdom of God is near. What is the kingdom of God? Well, we don't use that word kingdom very often, do we? The kingdom of God is not like the kingdom of Bhutan. It's not primarily a place. The way I've sort of tried to capture it is like this. The kingdom of God is what happens to life when the one true living God takes control and fulfills his good plans for his world and for us, his creatures, right? The kingdom of God is what happens to life when the one true living God takes control and fulfills his good plans for his world and for us, his creatures. It's what happens to life when the good God fulfills his good plans. Now, if you were with us last week, we jumped straight into the second half, actually, of Mark chapter 1 and saw Jesus interacting with some diff- just different regular people. And what we saw as he brought not just teaching this message of the kingdom of God but brought miraculous healings is that they were little windows into the reality of what the kingdom of God will bring. The kingdom of God will mean the end of sickness. It will mean the rescue of all of those who are under the shadow of death. Later on in the Bible, actually right towards the end of the Christian Bible, there's, a, I think, just a beautiful description of what the kingdom of God will be like for us when it arrives in its fullness. It comes from the book of Revelation, chapter 21, verses 3 and 4. I'll just read it out. Now, just imagine how good this will be when this is fulfilled in our experience. The writer there says, now the dwelling of God is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or grieving or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. See, when the good God fulfills his good plans, and everything is made right. How good will that be? That's why the coming of the kingdom of God is such good news. Remember the excitement it generated, as we saw last week, when Jesus went around and he was there in Capernaum teaching but also doing these miraculous healings. People flocked to him, bringing their sick that he might heal them and deliver their oppressed. They were, it was a joy-filled window into the coming reality of the kingdom of God. 
But get this, there's actually more good news to the kingdom of God story than just the end of sickness and death, as wonderful as that certainly is. There's good news at a deeper level, what the Bible calls the heart level, to do with our heart towards God himself. Now, interestingly, this was good news that people did not necessarily want to hear. You know, the end of sickness and death, that's great good news. But to imply that there's something wrong with my heart, my attitude towards God, my relationship with God, something wrong that needs fixing, just to imply that, well, that message, despite it actually coming as good news, that message has never always gone down well. Not in Jesus' years walking around Palestine, nor in the intervening centuries. You know why? Because some good news can only be heard with humility. Now, to understand this deeper heart-level good news, we really need to dig into Mark's origin story for Jesus. You know, origin stories, you know, the whole superhero movie genre now that they have, but lots of lots of movie genres actually, they now always somewhere in the series will have the origin story. Where did Wonder Woman come from? Where did Superman or Batman come from? What's the origin story? Well, that makes sense, right? And here in Mark's account of Jesus, life, teaching, death and resurrection, he has an origin story. What is the context to understand Jesus? Now, maybe you have a favourite origin story movie or an origin story book why don't you pop it on the chat now Um, we can see what each other like there and while people are doing that uh, let me just tell you a little bit about the four gospel accounts we have about Jesus life teaching death and resurrection in the New Testament we have four separate accounts and they all have different aspects or contributions to Jesus origin story They all focus on different aspects of his background or the context in which to understand him. So, for example, the Gospel of Matthew really focuses on the history of the nation of Israel and the particular promises the one true living God made to the nation of Israel as the background for understanding who Jesus is and what he does. Whereas the Gospel of Luke has a bit of a broader frame and focuses on the one true living God's purposes for all of humanity. Then you come to say the Gospel of John and his perspective that he or the contribution he brings is that Jesus is the only son of God the Father who has come from his heavenly Father amongst us to reveal the Father to us. And the Gospel of Mark, which we've heard a bit here, it has possibly the most bare origin story of the four But interestingly, the one bit that Mark focuses on is included in all four origin stories. All four of the gospel writers include a particular historical figure, the man John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. And they talk about John the Baptist with reference to a particular promise in the Jewish Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. All four gospel writers focus on John the Baptist and Isaiah 40, verse 3. So this is obviously critical to actually understand who Jesus is and what he came to do. 
So we need to dig in to understand what is Mark saying here when he talks about John the Baptist and Isaiah. So if you've got your Bible open, this would be a really helpful moment, or maybe call it up on your screen. Have a look at Mark chapter 1, and let's see what Mark gives us as part of this origin story. First thing to notice is, let me read there from verse 2. He says, it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the desert. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Now, it's interesting. He says there, it's written Isaiah the prophet. But actually, when you dig into what he then quotes, it seems that it comes from three different passages in the Old Testament, not just the book of Isaiah. So is this an error? Has Mark got it wrong? Mark didn't know his Bible, didn't didn't reference his work, his essay properly? What's, what's going on here? No, there's not a mistake. What Mark is saying in the way that it was done in the culture of the day is he's saying the, pr- the primary lens through which you need to understand these Old Testament prof- promises that I'm about to quote, the primary lens is the Isaiah reference. Isaiah is the key for understanding all three references. So let's dig in to try to work it out. First of all, the first quote is from Exodus chapter 23, verse 20. Exodus 23, verse 20. Now, before I read that out to you, you need to remember what the book of Exodus is about. The book of Exodus in the Old Testament describes the nation of Israel being rescued out of slavery in Egypt under the hand of Moses, being brought to Mount Sinai where the one true living God met with them really sort of constituted them as a nation, as his people, and then he established his covenant with them, a sort of formalised relationship with them where they were to obey the laws that he gave them so they could be his people in the world, and he would lead them to the promised land that he'd set apart for them. That's the context. Now listen to what the one true living God says to his people there at Mount Sinai after they've come out of Egypt as they're heading towards the promised land. This is what he says, Exodus 23, verse 20. He says, see, I am sending an angel or messenger ahead of you to guard you along the way and bring you to the place I have prepared. There's a messenger who's going to go ahead of them. And who's the one who's following the messenger? It's the nation of Israel. Okay, now that's happening right at the very beginning of Israel's history as a nation. The next quote, though, that Mark includes comes from the very end of Israel's history as a nation as recorded in the Old Testament. It comes from Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Listen to this one. The Lord says, See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? So I will come near to you for judgment. So these two quotes, Exodus 23 and Malachi 3, sort of bookend the history of the Israelite nation as recorded in the Old Testament. Exodus 23 I'm going to send my messenger ahead of you, but you need to keep my commands. 
But if you know the history of the Old Testament, that's what the Israelites failed to do. They continually rejected God's word and his way as a way, as symptoms really, of rejecting him as their God. They rejected his word, his way, and him as their God. It's what the Bible actually calls sin. And as a result, instead of enjoying life in God's blessing in the promised land, they ended up under God's judgment in exile. The Lord himself came to them and there was judgment and they ended up in exile, out of the land. But then comes the third quote that Mark includes. And remember, he said the Isaiah quote, which we're about to get to, this is the key for understanding the three of them. And this is what Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3 says. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Again, there's who's the one who's coming in this quote? It's the Lord God himself who's coming. But this time, different to Malachi 3, the Lord is not coming in judgment. No, when you get to this particular point of prophecy in the Old Testament, the message from God is a message of comfort. He is going to come to rescue his people out of exile and bring them back into the fullness of his promises. He's going to fulfill his good plans for his people. So he's going to come in restoration and comfort and rescue. This is good news in the Old Testament that God is going to come to rescue and fulfill his plans. So this is the the origin story. This is the background that Mark is setting up by which we need to then understand the person of Jesus. He's described this messenger who's going to come and prepare the way for the nation of Israel, but also in some of these quotes, prepare the way for God himself. And then what's the next thing that Mark describes for us? He says in verse 4, And so John came, baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Here then comes John the Baptist, John the Baptizer. And what is John doing? He's clearly identified here as the messenger who's coming before Israel, before the Lord himself. Well, John comes with a call. He comes with an action and he comes with a message. The call he has is he preaches a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. To repent just means to change your attitude, to have a complete change of mind, to turn around if you like. He is calling national Israel to come back to the one true living God, that their sins might be forgiven, that they might be forgiven for rejecting God's word and his way, for rejecting God as their God. This is its call. Repent, turn around, come back to God, that your sins might be forgiven. That's his call. And there's an accompanying action to go with it. He comes baptising them. And so he would take them out into the river and they, they would sort of, he would dunk them down under the water and then Up they'd come again, and it was a symbolic action representing externally what was going on internally. So the the physical sort of washing with water was meant to symbolise the forgiveness of sins, the washing away of sin, 
And the sort of coming up out of the water is symbolic of the new start. It's like starting life again of repentance, turning around, coming back to God. So he has a call, he has an accompanying action, baptism, and he has a message. Have a look at the message in verse 7. Mark records for us, and this was John's message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptise you with water, but he will baptise you with the Holy Spirit. Now, we already know from the Old Testament quotes that, yes, John is coming as the messenger, that someone's going to come after him. And now he's saying, yes, the one coming after me is greater than I. But he's also saying, what is this person going to do? This person is going to not wash you externally with water. No, he's going to baptise you internally with the Holy Spirit of God. This really is the ontological solution to the problem of sin, to the problem of rejecting God's word and God's way. This is a solution to the heart problem. So when our hearts are against God and we reject his word and his way and reject him as God, what we need is a heart change. And John is saying the one who's coming after me, that is what he will do. Baptised with the Holy Spirit, bring about the heart change that you really need. And so Mark then goes on. He says, verse 9, At that time Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptised by John in the Jordan. Now from the Old Testament quotations, who should follow the messenger? Well, it's, it's either national Israel from Exodus 23 or it's the Lord himself from Malachi 3 and Isaiah 40. But what Mark describes is a man. Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee, just a bloke. He's the one who comes after John. And yes, when you read through the rest of Mark's description here, you see a whole bunch of things happen that are meant to identify Jesus. Yes, he is faithful Israel. He's the new people of Israel. And he is the one in whom somehow, God himself is now present, come to his people. Let me point out a couple of those things for you. You'll, you heard there, as we sort of heard it on the video before, Jesus comes to John, he's baptised. So at that point, why is Jesus baptised? Well, because he's identifying himself with those from the nation of Israel who were repentant. Because those who Israelites who go, yes, actually, you know what? We have wandered away from God. We need to turn around and come back and have our sins forgiven. Jesus is saying, well, I identify with those people, the repentant Israelites. He's standing with those Israelites. Or a bit later on, as after he's baptised, Mark records for us how he sees the heavens sort of torn open, the Holy Spirit come down on Jesus like a dove, and there's a voice from heaven that says, you, to Jesus, are my son. Now, that's really significant language because in Exodus chapter 4, verses 22-23, the nation of Israel is identified as Jesus' son. And then a little bit later, we're told the Spirit sends Jesus out straight after his baptism into the desert, and he's in the desert for 40 days being tempted by Satan, Mark records there in verse 12. 
And that's significant because what about the history of the nation of Israel? They spent 40 years in the desert where it was a time of testing for them, where they were tempted, and yet where they were led by the Spirit of God present in the cloud that led them through the wilderness. You can see here in the different things that happen around Jesus' baptism that he's being identified as the true Israel, except unlike national Israel who failed that testing in the desert, who gave in to temptation, Jesus proves faithful. He's the faithful Israel. But he's also identified here as the one in whom God himself is now present amongst his people. This is there right in the very first sentence that Mark records in his account, the beginning of the gospel, the good news, about Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. So Jesus, the man from Nazareth, Christ, the title given to the promised anointed one, the promised king in the Old Testament, the Son of God. Now, Son of God sometimes can actually just be a synonym for Christ or Messiah or king. But I suspect, given the quotes that, that Mark launches straight into, where who is the one coming after the messenger? It's the Lord God himself. When he says son of God here, he's not just saying the king of Israel. He's saying the one who somehow God himself has now come amongst us in the person of his son. God is now present. This is who Jesus is. And he comes with a message. What's Jesus' message is where we started. He says he was proclaiming, in verse 14, the gospel of God, the good news from God. The time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the gospel. Believe this good news that the kingdom of God is near. Notice there the continuity between John the Baptist's message and Jesus' message. They're both saying, yep, it's time to repent. It's time to come back to God. But the thing that Jesus adds is believe the gospel, believe the good news, believe this announcement that the kingdom of God is near, that it's arriving as I teach, as I do these miracles, that this is the entry of the kingdom of God into God's world. What sort of response are we meant to make to that message? Well, yes, repent and believe. But, but what does that look like? Well, Mark gives us a little indication, actually, because what's the very next thing that happens? Verse 16, as Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said. I'll make you fishers of people. And at once they left their nets and followed him. Mark gives us an idea of what it looks like to respond to Jesus' call to repent and believe the gospel. It's to follow him. It's actually to give such a priority to him in your life that you might leave all other things behind. So here you have Simon and Andrew, two brothers, so fishermen, and they leave their job because Jesus says, come and follow me. They just leave their job. All worldly security sort of left at that point because Jesus has said, follow me. That gives you a little picture of what it looks like to 
repent, to turn around and to believe Jesus' message that the kingdom of God is here. You give that the top priority and you follow after him. And if that's not enough, then he goes along, we're told by Mark, he meets James and John, another set of brothers, also fishermen. And when Jesus says straight away to them, follow after me, we're told here that they leave their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men. That is, I mean, in those days, you're working in the family business. Your top loyalty is to your family. But here comes Jesus saying, come follow me, and these two brothers leave their dad, their family business, their family loyalty, and follow after Jesus. They leave their dad just with the hired men who have no family loyalty. You see the picture that's being painted here? To repent and believe the gospel, this announcement that the kingdom of God is near, suddenly means that it has the primary call on your life. More important than your job. More important than your family. That's what it looks like to repent and believe the gospel, to follow after Jesus. So what does this all mean for us? as we sit here in this highly unusual situation because of COVID-19, well, it might be hard to believe, but there really is good news amidst COVID-19. And in the coming days, that may become increasingly hard to believe. If we see infection rates soar, if we see the number of deaths rise and come closer to home, But there is good news. It's the same life-changing, life-infusing good news that Christians have been sharing since the very first century AD, namely the promised kingdom of God has begun. Now, in Jesus' day, national Israel were looking for a political and military deliverance from Roman occupation of their land, and they figured that that was their route to God's promised future, kick out the Romans. But Jesus flipped it on them. He said, what you actually need to enter the kingdom of God, God's promised future, is you need internal renewal. You need new hearts, not an external revolution. The key to entering the kingdom of God is new hearts. Repent and believe the good news gospel, and follow after me. And you will be baptised with the Holy Spirit, the new heart that you need. Now, in our day, the whole world is currently looking for medical deliverance from this novel coronavirus. Not really, I think, so that we might enter the kingdom of God of our own imagination, No, I think we want deliverance from the novel coronavirus because it's scary, but also because it's, it's threatening seriously any plans that we have for our own hoped for future. And yet in the midst of that, Jesus' call rings out to us. The time has arrived. The promised kingdom of God has begun. And if you want in on this kingdom of God, and and you'd be crazy not to, then you need to heed Jesus' call. Repent, believe this announcement of good news, and follow after him. And then you too will have that new heart 
that internal renewal that we all need to enter into the kingdom of God. See, there's something here, and I don't say this glibly, but there's something here in Jesus' message that is more important than COVID-19, and that's not to dismiss the seriousness of what we're all facing at the moment. But what Jesus is announcing here is actually more grand good news than even finding a vaccine for COVID-19. Why? Because the good that Jesus' announcement achieves is greater than even that a vaccine could achieve. It cures a deeper sickness. It, It grants a longer eternal life. And so in the midst of our current crisis, we need to remember that all good news from God needs to be heard and it's good news that deserves to be shared. I just wonder if you're watching this today and thinking about this, are there people that you know who need good news at this time? Well, you don't have to make it up. Jesus has good news for them. The time has arrived. The kingdom of God has begun. Repent, believe this good news about the kingdom of God, follow after him, and you will enter that kingdom of God. You will have that baptism of the Holy Spirit, the new heart. And that is the greatest possible good. I do hope that you pray that we might find a vaccine soon because that will be truly great news when one is found. But the good news of the gospel of Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, that is already on offer. It is already being announced that you can have spirit-filled new life in the kingdom of God following Jesus. Do you have the humility to hear that good news? Please take it up. It's the most important good news you'll ever hear. I hope next week you can join us again as we explore more deeply into who Jesus is and this good news that he announces about the kingdom of God. See you then.